Thank you for the invitation to be with you this morning, even if we aren't able to meet in person. It's still a privilege to be able to share God's Word together. My name's Evan Winter, and I've been a member of Shirley Baptist Church since moving into the Midlands nearly 25 years ago. Pre-pandemic, I loved travelling to new cities, and especially to join a walking tour. As you wander around with a good local guide, you begin to pick up some of the history, stories behind buildings, roads, parks, rivers and so on. It's fascinating. Every city has developed differently, and so has a different atmosphere. Berlin is so different from Rome, from Paris, from London, yet all are interesting and exciting. But is that as far as my fascination takes me? The Apostle Paul arrived in Athens, one of the major cities of the ancient world. It was a centre of culture, power and religious devotion. He may have been impressed by the magnificence of buildings such as the Acropolis or the Parthenon, by the many other temples and man-made creations, but he wasn't overawed by them. It was what they represented that made the greatest impression on him. Luke records that he saw a city full of idols, which led him to becoming greatly distressed. Why the strong reaction? Paul's overriding goal in life was to see the one true God's glory exalted through the whole world. These temples and idols to other gods were an affront to him and to God, as an idol represents a God substitute. Any person or thing that occupies the foremost place which God should occupy in our lives is an idol. It doesn't have to be a grand t t temple, a totem pole or a witch doctor's mask. Our idols are usually a bit more subtle today and underhand, but are just as effective in dethroning God from his rightful place in our lives. We can make an idol from fame, power, wealth and possessions, food, alcohol, parents, children, career, home, holidays, and this list isn't exhaustive. Even ideologies can be idolatry. Our belief systems, our worldview, our philosophy of life. Paul's distress was not a sudden loss of temper or a flash of indignation, but a settled, cons consistent response to what he saw. The same word is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, where God was provoked to anger when the children of Israel gave themselves over to worshipping false gods. Paul saw the honour and glory that rightfully belonged to God being given to another, and he was so upset that he took decisive action. He didn't remain a tourist. In verse 18, we read that he went to where the people were. He didn't expect them to come to him and reasoned with them every day about Jesus and the resurrection. Firstly, in the synagogue, then the marketplace, and finally he was brought to the highest court, the Areopagus. He refused to be quiet and couldn't be silenced. Despite being on his own in a strange city, with no support from a team of fellow workers or a local church, his single-minded zeal for God's glory drove him on. What a challenge to us, to me. Later we'll explore in more detail some of the idolatry that surrounds us every day, but how do we respond to it? Are we indifferent, unmoved, uncaring that people are worshipping things that will not satisfy and certainly won't bring peace or salvation? 
Perhaps we don't want to upset people as we've drunk from the spirit of the age of toleration, scared what people might think of us. Is this because we have lost any sense of grief over the general attitude to God that pervades our society, where he's ignored, deemed irrelevant, blasphemed, ridiculed? When people use the expression OMG to punctuate every other sentence, does that cause any reaction within us? Usually, with me anyway, it's not enough to spur me into speaking up. Or it may be that we keep quiet because we feel helpless. Anything we say wouldn't make any difference, we think. We would only be one lonely voice that is so easy to disregard. Can we pray for the same overwhelming desire and motivation that Paul had to see God honoured and esteemed? Paul's witnessing about Jesus resulted in him being brought before the Areopagus, where he had to make his defence. This is obviously just a summary of the main points of his speech, but even though it was delivered 2,000 years ago to a very different culture and context, it gives us great principles to follow as we seek to engage with British culture and society in the 21st century. The first thing to notice is that Paul recognised where his audience were coming from. They were Gentiles, so he didn't start with a history of God's dealing with his Jewish forefathers. Paul recognised their religious fervour. Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. Would that kind of introduction work in Britain today? I doubt that it would connect with many people. Where there's very little understanding about the Christian God and his way of salvation, Pre-evangelism is often required, and that is where we're at with the majority of people in the West today. There may be a great deal of interest in spirituality, but it's generally homemade, a worldview that's created to fit my outlook on life and doesn't make many demands on me. This isn't dissimilar to the situation Paul faced in Athens. There were two main philosophies of life and religions pervading the culture, emanating from Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, who at that time were the most sophisticated thinkers in the known world, the university professors of their day. The Epicureans pursued pleasure as a chief purpose in life, a peaceful life free from pain and superstition, fears they didn't have, including the fear of death. They did not deny the existence of gods, but believed that they had nothing to do with man, as the gods were detached and remote taking no interest in human affairs. The world was due to chance, and there would be no survival of death and no judgment. They may not be called Epicureans, but I'm sure you've met many people whose worldview is quite similar. Today, people may reveal this outlook with the expressions, I just want to be happy, or I just want my children to have a good life. The Stoics, on the other hand, were pantheists. Everything was God, and God was in everything. They put great emphasis on moral sincerity and a high sense of duty, so they believed that all things, good or evil, were from God, and nothing should be resisted. The world was determined by fate, and human beings must pursue their duty, resigning themselves to live in harmony with nature and reason, however painful this might be. Again we encounter aspects of this belief system all around us, Mustn't grumble, or the Dunkirk spirit aren't just refrains from older people. 
It also underpins the worldview of many immigrant people coming to the West. Britain has changed beyond recognition within the last 50 years. Some argue that we are not in a post-Christian society, but really a pre-Christian one. Knowledge about the God as revealed in the Bible is virtually non-existent. A society that was largely based on Judeo-Christian values is disappearing, and many of the beliefs that Christians hold as central to our faith are despised. We are now in the second or third generation of people who know nothing or virtually nothing about the Bible or Jesus, except for the distorted view that is portrayed in the media. Christians and their values are often viewed with suspicion or even disdain. We are seen as a threat to the spirit of tolerance. How dare we claim to have access to the truth? We have become the baddies. Furthermore, Britain is also a mixing pot of ethnicities and cultures. We have had an influx of people who have come with a very different worldview and cultural outlook. Their cultural norms are based on an honour-shame premise that is completely different to our Western mindset. How can we bridge the gap in exploring the Gospel to them? Mission workers have grappled with these issues for generations, but they are now part and parcel of the everyday experience of each one of us. Can we learn anything from how Paul conducted pre-evangelism? He took them on an intellectual journey by what could be called positive deconstruction. He looked at their philosophies, even quoting from their poets and writers, and by reasoned argument proved that when taken to their logical conclusions, their beliefs were inconsistent. While engaging in this deconstruction, he still had a clear goal of where he wanted to eventually reach, and that was to present Christ, his death and resurrection, as the answer to the searching these people were showing. Let's follow a bit more closely Paul's deconstruction of the Athenian worldview. They agreed that Paul is the creator of the universe, so Paul argued that it would be therefore absurd to suppose that he would live in shrines that human hands had made. Verse 24. Idolatry is trying to confine God to limits that we impose on him. Then, God is the sustainer of all life, verse 25. So again, it's absurd to suppose that he would need anything from us to sustain him. Idolatry tries to domesticate God, making him dependent on us by permitting us to create or shape him to the image we desire. In verse 26, God is the ruler of all nations, allocating their times and places so that people might seek him perhaps reach out to him. He is in control of the world, not us. Yet we have strayed far from him and from the way he has designed for us to live. Disobedience and sin have entered our world. Their poets agreed that God is the father of all human life and we are his offspring. In creation terms this is true in that God is the father of all mankind, receiving our life from him. However, in redemption terms, and this was the point Paul wanted to highlight, God is the Father only of those who are in Christ. In summary then, all idolatry tries to minimise the gulf between the Creator and his creatures. In order to bring him under our control, we actually try to reverse the respective positions of God and us 
so that instead of our humbly acknowledging that God has created and rules us, we presume to imagine that we can create and rule God. We make a God out of our own imagination, one who suits our purposes and responds to our will, never challenging our behaviour or attitudes. His main purpose is to make sure our lives are free from worry and stress. How can we use these thoughts to engage with the Western world that we are part of? The main root of idolatry I see today is a form of humanism that declares that I am master of my own destiny and the most important thing in life is to be true or genuine to myself. Therefore, no one has any right to challenge what I think or believe and you must be tolerant, accepting and even endorsing of my beliefs as they are what makes me authentic. That is the ultimate goal. The theologian Tom Wright has given four good questions to ask that will help us explore people's world's view with them. First one is, who am I? In other words, what do people think? Am I just a random collection of atoms that occupies a space and uses resources for a period of time? Secondly, why am I here? What is my real purpose for being on this planet? Is it to be a consumer so that I've a, I have a happy, peaceful existence, procreate, hopefully leave my world a better place than when I entered it, and death is the end? Or is there anything more? Thirdly, what's wrong with the world? I think this is an especially relevant area to explore today, as there are so many areas that are messed up. We trusted our pol political leaders to keep peace, that's been shattered over the last six weeks. The fighting's confined to Ukraine at present, but we're all aware how easily that could spread to overtake much of Europe. We believed the rising living standards were unstoppable. Our children would have a better life than us, more possessions and fewer financial worries. But the banking crisis of 2008 and more recently soaring energy and food prices show that we cannot depend on increasing wealth for each subsequent generation. We thought that better medicines and improvement in health care would make most of us immune to killer diseases. But the COVID pandemic has shattered that illusion. We've become very aware that life can be very fragile. We believed that man was developing such sophisticated systems that we could control and even improve our environment. But the reality is that we've caused so much pollution that climate change is causing more and more extremes in our weather and may be irreversible. It's estimated that over 25% of the world's mammals and 40% of amphibians are in danger of becoming extinct. So it shouldn't be hard to convince people that there is so much wrong in our world today. But we don't want to leave it there. So Wright's fourth question is, can the world be fixed? It's obvious from the above that man doesn't have the answers. Where can we turn? Well, the Christian worldview is that God is still sovereign and has a plan to restore the world back into its rightful relationship with him. And that will be through his son, Jesus, whom he sent to provide a way by his death and resurrection for us to come into that restored relationship. And that brings us neatly to where Paul has been 
leading like a heat-seeking missile with his speech. It's just as vital that we raise this issue with people today as it was in his world. God is judge of the world. In verse 30 and 31, Luke records, In the past God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. God's long-suffering and tolerance should not be regarded as not caring about or indifferent to our sinful ways. He has given us sufficient evidence of his desire for righteous living and how to be in relationship with him. He is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. 2 Peter 3 verse 9. So, in conclusion, what are some of the lessons we can take away and apply in our lives from Paul's speech to the Athenians? Firstly, analyse and gain understanding of our culture. Don't let it lull us into a false sense that everything's all right. It is often not benign and neutral, but antichrist, and in many areas wants to obliterate Christian values and lifestyles. Ask God to jolt us out of our indifference and give us a reaction of distress similar to what Paul had when confronted by such views, and that he will spur us into taking action. Be intentional in our pre-evangelism, making links that connect with people's worldviews and helping them to see the inconsistencies that they contain. And in our evangelism, point people to Jesus, his death and resurrection. Peter writes in 1 Peter 3.15, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. And lastly, leave the results to God. Luke records that only a small number of Athenians became believers. That didn't deter Paul. He had remained faithful and continued with his life's work and ministry as he moved from Athens to Corinth. May God enable you and I to follow Paul's example in pointing people to Jesus. Amen.